Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the history of Byzantium. Episode 58. Why did the Arabs win? Part 3. They wanted it more. In the last two episodes we've discussed the problem of accepting the traditional narrative as presented by Muslim historians writing in later centuries. We aren't completely rejecting those accounts, we just can't rely entirely on them. Hopefully some combination between the knowledge they give us and other sources will shed light on the problem. So let's just remind ourselves of the position we're in. Since the beginning of this podcast, the role of the Arabs on the international stage has grown significantly. The raids of the pagan Lakhmids so concerned Justinian that he sought out the Christian Ghassanids and paid them to form a coalition of tribes to police the Syrian desert. The status of that coalition vis-a-vis the Byzantines fluctuated. We then know that Muhammad's career took place during the last great war between Rome and Persia and that by the mid-630s Arab armies had defeated both imperial powers in battle and by 652 they had conquered the whole of Sasanid territory and two-thirds of Byzantium's. So the question of why did the Arabs win seems to zero in on that time between the breakthrough of Khosrow II's forces and the battle of Yarmouk. Where can we look that will help us find out more? Let's start with the Arabs as a people and Arabia as a place. Something I'd not really thought about before is that Arabia is part of the world's largest desert. It's clearly geologically connected to the Sahara. If you look at the map I posted with episode 55, you can see this clearly. Because the Red Sea splits them, Arabia forms a separate ecosystem. This meant that the Arabs were a homogenous people. Pretty much everyone who lived there spoke Arabic and shared in a common culture. There was very little history of statehood in Arabia, either internal or external. Only in Yemen in the southwest corner is there enough rainfall to establish large agricultural communities and small kingdoms usually ruled there. We encountered one of these way back in episode 15, the kingdom of Himyar, the one that was then ruled by Yusuf du Nuwas, a Jew who tried to kill or convert all of the Christians in his kingdom until Justinian and the Axumites intervened. 
Obviously, much of Arabia is covered in sand desert and dotted with oases. In some places, there were perennial springs or water that could be taken from the ground by wells. And with enough industry, there were small settlements which developed fairly intense agricultural productivity over their area. There were a good number of these larger oases in the northwest of Arabia, known as the Hijaz. The Hijaz is where you'll find Mecca and Medina. And to the north of Medina were a cluster of such settlements leading north toward Palestine. The map I've posted this week on Facebook and at the website is fairly basic. It shows where the major cities and major tribes were around 600 AD. It doesn't show where the oasis towns are, but hopefully from my description you can see that it was not worth it to the empires in the north to try and conquer the expanse of desert to the south, and the kingdom of Yemen did not have the resources to go north and conquer the settlements there. Many of the people in Arabia were farmers or settled workers, but in between these outposts moved the nomads, the Bedouin, the Arab figure most familiar to the popular imagination. They were usually herders of goats, sheep or camels, and they would migrate from one seasonal pasture land to another and from one well or spring to the next. This type of existence was never likely to support a large population, and hence why the Romans and Persians had never felt significantly threatened even by the most militant band of raiders. Society in Arabia was more complex than that simple division, though. Many people were occupied in what we would call semi-nomadic life. Along the fringes of Syria and Mesopotamia, for example, some tribes would keep a farm in the summer, but then take their flocks out in winter to find them the lush grass which would appear during the rainy season. The population of Arabia seems to have always been in flux. Some were fully nomadic, but might shift into semi-nomadism if they acquired a farm. Their descendants might then be raided by more fierce, fully nomadic people and end up paying protection money to them only for those nomads to become rich, acquire farms for themselves, and the cycle repeat itself, and many other more complex cycles of changing circumstance. This is why the tribe was so important. With no state, there was no army and no police, and certainly no courts of justice. Therefore, in order to protect yourself and your wealth, your extended family and their extended family became your protectors. Because it's hard to define where your tribe begins and ends, the reality was that power was often the true distinction between tribal groups. One group would grow strong, defeat other tribes only to one day be supplanted themselves as another coalition formed against them. Into this mix of ever-fluctuating existence stood the two pillars of stability in the north, Syria and Mesopotamia, or Iraq as we'll increasingly come to call it. Suddenly, there, the rivers of the Fertile Crescent give life to full-blooded agriculture. Arab traders had carried goods to and from the settled civilizations for centuries, and the northern tribes had, of course, hired out their services as warriors. This brings us back to the Ghassanids and the Lachmids. They were merely the chief tribes in a coalition of groups who now lived both inside and outside the borders of the two empires. The edges of the Syrian desert were now filled with men who made a good living 
from the coin of the emperor or the Shah and Shah. The traditional Muslim account sees Muhammad as the great state maker. Muhammad's new community of believers begins to bring other tribes under their control once they have set up base in Medina. Muhammad then uses a combination of ruthless military pragmatism and wise statecraft to bind other tribes to him. Just like Julius Caesar or other great leaders, he offers clemency to those who cooperate and destruction to those who resist. He uses marriage alliances to combine and concessions to tempt other tribes into the Muslim fold. The key to Muhammad's new creation is that the tribes accept the authority of the new community. It now had primacy in their loyalty and obedience. This was obviously a big change from the life many were used to. The payment of some kind of tax to the new state further bolstered its organizational capacity. After Muhammad's death, many tribes attempted to break free from the new state, and the first caliph, Abu Bakr, had to use force to drag them back into the fold before beginning the conquest of Syria and Iraq. If we were to set that story aside then what is the alternative? In the last episode, Tom Holland described the conquests in terms of the same tribes that would have made up the Ghassanids and Lachmids going to war with one another for supremacy in the power gap left after Heraclius' victory. We don't know exactly what happened to those tribes during the war. Remember that these tribes are not two opposing blocks, strictly defined. If the Ghassanid Phylarch is keeping up his payments, then you are a loyal tribe in their coalition. But if the subsidies are cut off, as they were by Maurice, then you are going back to raiding both other tribes and the settled populations when cash runs low. Same goes for the Lakhmids, many of whom were Christians by this stage, but uh, who'd fallen out with the Sassanids in 602. What we can be sure of is that once Heraclius was pushed out of Syria in 613, he wasn't paying anyone anymore. We know the Sassanids did hire Arabs for military service during the occupation, but there must have been many who were suddenly out of work. By the time Heraclius was ready to go to battle in 622, he encountered Arab scouts in the service of Kusro and offered them cash to switch sides. But that means for a good 20 years, the traditional payment structures established in Justinian's day would have been thrown out of whack. Not only were the Romans gone, but the Persians were stretched thin. They only had enough men to garrison the conquered cities and keep armies in the field against the Romans. They didn't have resources to spare to police the restless Arab tribes. Those tribes would have watched with surprise as first the Romans and then the Persians were humiliated in defeat. Their seemingly immense power so quickly shaken to its core. And of course it wouldn't have gone unnoticed that the seemingly eternal boundary of the Syrian desert that had kept the two empires apart for 600 years had so easily been circumvented by both sides. I will talk more about the meagre evidence we have for what might have been going on with the Arabs uh, during this time in the sale episode. But the conclusion of some of the, sc- the scholars that I researched for that episode suggests that the conflicts being described in the Quran could have taken place north of Medina rather than to the south. 
But Muhammad's message of monotheist unity and loyalty to a new community might have taken hold amongst those disaffected tribes on the border with Palestine. If a new coalition of these groups was formed, perhaps inspired by an inclusive monotheist doctrine that bound them together, then perhaps that is an alternative explanation for the foundation of this new community. As I say, I will go into the potential explanations for that theory in the sale episode. Um, it is just a theory, so it's not really worth discussing now. But it does give us two potential explanations for the formation of an Arab community that was then capable of putting together armies to defeat the Romans and Persians in battle. But why did they invade Syria and Iraq? What was their motivation? We can fairly easily dismiss much later stories that have Muhammad writing to Khusro and Heraclius to announce the universality of his faith. As I mentioned at the time, any such letter would never have made it to the respective rulers, as their underlings would have read it and been baffled by someone they had never heard of demanding their submission. The actual story then has Khusro tearing up the letter to which Muhammad, on receipt of the news, comments, thus will the empire of Khusro be torn to pieces. Meanwhile, Heraclius is much friendlier and interviews the envoys who brought the message. Uh, he reads out the letter to some assembled advisers, implying that he thinks they should pledge allegiance to the prophet. The Romans are naturally outraged at this suggestion, and the emperor plays the moment off as a bizarre test of their loyalties. It seems pretty clear that this story was made up by men living centuries later to try and explain why the Sassanid Empire had disappeared, but the Romans stubbornly remained. What about jihad? In the popular imagination, the picture may be that Muhammad told his followers to go out and conquer the world in the name of God. But once the Arabs had occupied the Middle East, they made almost no effort to convert the peoples they had subjugated. Plus, many Muslim scholars doubt that jihad meant holy war the same way some of us think of it now. Jihad translates as struggle, and historians like Reza Aslan describe this as meaning both an internal struggle for purity as well as an outer struggle to ward off oppression, but not a conquest ideology. Several alternatives present themselves if we discount a calculated assault as the initial spur for the invasions. One is that restless Bedouins simply raided for plunder and things escalated. If you follow the theory that the original Muslim community was based around the former Ghassanid or Lakhmid tribes, then this idea would make a lot of sense. The subsidies have been cut off, the empires have been humbled, who's going to stop us if we do raid Palestine? Or if you follow the traditional Muslim account, this story sounds equally plausible. If Muhammad is working hard to secure the loyalty of the usually feuding Bedouin of northern Arabia, then he has to get them on board with not attacking one another anymore. But many of these tribes are used to raiding as part of their livelihood, so why not direct them north to attack the settled peoples outside of the new community? Professor Fred Donner, one of the leading experts on Islamic history, suggests a more complicated but related possibility. He believes that part of Muhammad's goal was to somehow rein in the nomads, 
Initially, he had apparently encouraged the tribes to come and settle within the community. Once they gave up their raiding life, they could become more effective uh, Muslims. But this was difficult to achieve, given that there isn't enough farmable land in Arabia to settle everybody on. So Muhammad had to accept that the Bedouin would continue to roam the deserts, but he still wanted to bring them inside his tent. The problem with this, as Abu Bakr found after Muhammad's death, was that the Bedouin could migrate outside of the reach of the new community. So, perhaps the raids into Palestine and the Syrian desert began as attempts to bring the most northerly tribes into the orbit of the new state. Their continued freedom from control would only encourage others to break away, and so they had to be pursued, and that chase took the Arabs into conflict with imperial forces. Still another theory, which I will explore more in the sale episode, is that there was a heavy Jewish influence on the original Islamic movement, and that the reason they invaded Palestine was to take, or take back, Jerusalem. But that's for another day. Part of the reason for skepticism of the traditional Muslim accounts are that it's hard to imagine a state forming within an only one generation which could command the loyalty of all those independent tribes. That this new state could then order them to march hundreds of miles north to conquer new territory and still maintain control of them does sound incredible. So whether we are dealing with an organised state who directed the armies, or if we're talking about tribes who already lived on the border and began raiding because they sensed weakness, war is now at hand. Most of your questions about the Arabs were about this moment, about the conflict with Roman Persia. Questions like, why were the Arab forces suddenly so much more effective against the imperial armies? Were there changes in strategy, tactics or technology? Or was it simply a matter of them having the will to win, so to speak? Or, was there any development in Arab training tactics or strategy that allowed their armies to suddenly be able to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with or even outclass the Roman military? I began this series by asking, why did the Romans lose? Because I could sense in your questions the apparent disparity between the two sides. And you're not wrong in general. Byzantium's population vastly outnumbered the Arabs, and there was little in the way of precedent for Arab forces seriously challenging imperial field armies. However, it was worth focusing on Roman weaknesses, which aided defeat. Tom Holland brought up the plague, of course, but also emphasised the psychological and perhaps ideological damage that Roman defeat in the Great War with Persia did. This combination of imperial weakness and Arab confidence plays into what we know about the Battle of Yarmouk. The Romans attempted to use their heavy cavalry to drive the Arabs off. This seemed the logical way to disperse men who were lightly armoured by comparison. If you remember, the Arab infantry were said to have used hobbled camels to help create makeshift defences around their camp, and face down the Roman cavalry until their own could drive them off. This tactical surprise ended up causing chaos for the Roman cavalry, and their exit from the battlefield was the end of the imperial side's chances of achieving victory. However, the devastating rout which occurred was more due to the Arabs' choice of battle site. 
By picking a spot amidst rivers and ravines, the Arabs made it as hard as possible for the Romans to simply blow them out of the water. The implication being that the Arabs felt they were the weaker side and possibly were outnumbered. Interestingly, they also chose to fight near the Ghassanids' traditional base. Again, historians take from this that the Arabs were planning for defeat. If they were forced to rout themselves, then they could retreat into the desert, where the imperial troops would be afraid to follow. So it would seem the Arabs outsmarted the Romans and won a famous victory as a result. Now, of course, we don't know how accurate the descriptions of the Yarmouk are. We do at least have some non-Arabic sources reporting on the story, and apparently no Roman traditions survive which contradict them. If we take the battle as the basis for further discussion, then let's talk about the Arab soldiers. First off, if you assume one way or another that some of the men fighting in the conquests were former imperial clients, then these were good soldiers, already used to combat with imperial forces. If you remember Khusro I's attack, which culminated in the sack of Antioch, he used Lachmid troops extensively, and Belisarius then let the Ghassanids take the lead in his counterattack. Fully nomadic men would have made better individual soldiers than your average town dweller. They spent their lives raiding and fighting and would be comfortable with spears, swords, bow and arrow. However, the bulk of the Muslim army seemed to have been infantry, which surprised me and many of you. Horses were an expensive and precious commodity down in Arabia. Horses need a lot of fodder and water, and so dragging them through sand desert won't last very long. The tribes in and around the Syrian desert could more easily keep them because of their better access to grass. Camels were, of course, the better beasts to take through the desert, but were rarely used in battle. They were ideal for transport, but too slow and unused to the rigours of combat. The majority of the armies of conquest, then, were infantry. The cavalry were kept on the wings, avoiding frontal assaults if possible. Generally, the armies of conquest would have had no heavy armour. The leaders of forces would probably wear light chainmail or leather armour, while the poorer infantry might only have had uh, leather helmets for protection, though in hot weather, the Arabs may well have felt that heavy armour was just a hindrance. As far as we know, men wore cloth tunics and sandals, not that dissimilar to what the Romans would have worn. Certainly there was no sense of uniform at this stage. The infantry fought with bow, spear, sword and shield. They carried short swords, similar to the old Roman gladius. There is no mention of scimitars or curved blades until well into the 9th century. In the reports we have, archery plays a key role as a defensive tactic, driving back the Roman cavalry when they approach. Now, I know some of you will hear that description and still wonder how could the better armoured Roman infantry lose? But we should remember that infantry battles are rarely decisive until one side begins to run or are surrounded. And the Byzantine cataphracts were, of course, a more formidable force than the Arab cavalry if you just get them to charge at one another. But battle is about manoeuvre. Remember the Battle of Dara? Belisarius used nomadic horsemen with light armour to slaughter 
Persian heavy cavalry. If you surround someone or attack them from behind, they will die uh, or flee if they can. The key is, of course, discipline. What we want to know is what made the Arab army suddenly willing to stand firm in battle rather than scatter as had been the Byzantine experience up to that point. Was it the inspiration of fresh religious belief? Or was it years of fighting for Muhammad against his enemies? Or was it that these men had been fighting for the Romans and Persians and had long ago learnt the ways of pitched battle? Whatever you conclude, the answer to your questions is that there was no technological or tactical innovation which made the Arabs suddenly able to match the Romans in the field. Perhaps we underestimate them or overestimate Rome. All we can guess is that they believed they could win, chose their ground very carefully, and took advantage of their opponents' mistakes. Victory, of course, is a wonderful thing. To the many doubters on the sidelines, the news of the amazing win at the Yarmouk would have changed everybody's perspective. Suddenly, if you were an Arab tribesman anywhere near the Fertile Crescent, your opportunities for enrichment just went through the roof. And as a recruiting tool for the new state, nothing could have been more dramatic. Suddenly, there was wealth to help pay for more men and better equipment to strap on. The gear taken from the Roman dead was augmented by capturing their workshops. Best of all, the conquerors could get their hands on Syrian horses and stud farms, which would furnish their armies with better cavalry. Moments like this are also where the Bedouin excelled, at chasing opponents down and harassing them. There were few better. So if the Romans wanted time to regroup, they got none, as raiding parties went far and wide, looking for easy cash. During the narrative episodes, I followed the standard line that the Battle of Al-Qadassiyah, the great Persian defeat in Iraq, took place in the same year, 636, just before the Yarmouk. As I will talk about in the sale episode, there is plenty of evidence that actually Al-Qadassiyah happened the following year in 637, which makes a lot of sense on the surface. If the Arab tribes had any doubts about provoking the King of Kings with their raids, these might have dissipated once news of the Yarmouk reached them. We have to rely entirely on the Muslim historians for accounts of this battle, but here's what they say, and we'll see what we can learn from it. After the Yarmouk, an Arab force crossed the Euphrates and went directly for Tessaphon and put it under siege. The surprised Sassanids gathered their army to counterattack the following spring. A large army duly arrived and drove the Arabs away from the capital. They pursued them and defeated them at the Battle of the Bridge as they crossed the Euphrates. However, the Arab forces regrouped and called for more reinforcements, while the Persian troops made no attempt to pursue them into the desert. By January 638, the Arabs returned to battle at Cadesia, not far from Hira, once home to the Lakhmids. Once again, the ground was chosen carefully. The battlefield was heavily constricted by physical obstacles, the Euphrates on one side, a canal, a lake, and a swamp as well. This left a very narrow field of battle for the Arab infantry to defend. Once again, behind them was the desert, in case they needed to retreat. 
As the Romans had done, the Persians tried to use shock troops to break the Arab force. This time it was elephants, apparently. Across the three-day battle, the Arabs had to stand firm against repeated attacks, using arrows and javelins to drive the enemy away. Eventually, they wounded several elephants badly enough that they stampeded through one of the Persian wings, causing chaos. As at the Yarmouk, the Arabs pounced on this and cut off the Persian centre and other wing. The Sassanid troops tried to make an organised retreat over the river the next day, but panic spread and a rout ensued. Once again, if we believe this account, then the Arab army simply seems to have chosen their ground well, prepared for defeat, and took advantage of their enemy's errors. There are a number of similarities between the descriptions of the two battles, which could point to the authenticity of their accounts, or could suggest a lack of imagination on the part of the authors. If we ignore the specific details and just try to pull out the essential lessons of these scenarios, then I do think we can find some answers. You know the old adage in sport that the winners just wanted it more? I think there's a bit of that in the Arab conquests. And I don't mean that the Romans or Persians wanted it less. What I mean is similar to what I said in the episode, Why Did the Romans Lose?, I pointed out then the example of the Roman defeat at the hands of the Persians in the 3rd century and how Odenothus of Palmyra had essentially taken control of the Eastern Empire. Well, let's take another example, Attila the Hun. If you remember, Attila destroyed every Roman army he came up against. But instead of trying to conquer the empire, he just wanted tribute. Or, do you remember Peroz? the king of kings left for dead in a ditch by the Hephthalites. Those white Huns could have attempted to conquer the Sassanid Empire, but they weren't interested. They knew that they belonged on the steppes. That's where their lives were, that's where their strength was. They demanded tribute and went back to business as usual. My point being that the Romans and Persians had suffered catastrophes before, but hadn't been conquered Their enemies either didn't want it enough, or were just too wary of the potential for counterattack, which those states possessed. That sense of balance was ever-present between Rome and Persia themselves. Augustus knew it was better to negotiate to get Crassus's legionary standards back, rather than to fight for them. Hadrian knew it was better to leave Mesopotamia than try to hold it. Even Khusro II was forced by Heraclius to concede that he didn't have enough in the bank to cash that particular check. But the Arabs decided differently. Whether by design or accident, when they laid waste to the defences of the Fertile Crescent, they decided to take it. They were not a distant conqueror. Their people already lived all over the area. They knew it well. Some of them owned property in Syria, as Tom Holland mentioned. Instead of fearing the reprisal coming from their defeated enemies, they pressed on, attacking and attacking year after year, determined to drive them out for good. That determination to keep what they had taken was crucial in the success of the conquests. And of course, after the Yarmouk and Al-Qadisiyah, the resources of two of the richest places in the ancient world were suddenly available to fund the continued assaults.
In the vein of why did the Romans lose, I mentioned then that the lack of regional military power meant that once the eastern army had been routed, suddenly hundreds of miles of territory were open to conquest. I want to link that point to the last thing I just mentioned. When the Arabs pushed the Romans out of Syria, their conquest was made easier by the fact that Syria and Palestine were provinces linked together. The roads and harbours all functioned as one unit, as did the administrators and tax collectors who remained behind. The same thing goes in Iraq. In both places, the fact that these large chunks of territory were essentially gift-wrapped for the conquerors was a big help. It's a silly example, I know, but if you tried to do the same thing today, you would come up against the governments of Jordan, Israel, Syria, Iraq, Kuwait, and so on. Perhaps a more relevant example would be trying to conquer Britain in the 7th century. You would have to take on Mercia, Northumbria, the Welsh, the Picts, and so on. A number of different groups who would each have motivation to resist you. Instead, the Roman and Persian worlds were so used to working as one that they comparatively meekly responded to this changing of the guard. Another factor, and probably the most important one militarily, is that the Arabs knew the desert so well. Back during the history of Rome, it came up fairly often that the Romans never really took to the sea. As it wasn't a factor in their history until the Punic Wars, they had no culture of championing the navy. Even after they mastered the Carthaginians, they never gave it the pride of place that they might have. They simply marched around the Mediterranean, conquering each people on land until it became our sea. Same goes for the desert, which they never even attempted to conquer. It remained the border of the south and east of their empire. And neither did the Sassanids. There was nothing in or across the desert seemingly worth obtaining, so both empires left it to the Arabs. That barrier, which had for so long been an effective frontier between the two great powers, now became the superhighway, delivering Arab armies into their midst. Several historians have likened this situation to that faced by northern Europe during the Viking era. The coasts and rivers had for so long been peaceful features that to see Norse warriors appear from nowhere and begin attacking was quite a shock. The raiders could then appear and disappear at great speed, avoiding the far slower armies of the kingdoms they invaded. With the Arabs, they could march in and out of Syria, Iraq and Egypt at speeds which the settled peoples couldn't anticipate. So if the Arabs had no particular advantage over their opponents in tactics or armour, we can now see that they had a major strategic advantage. Their knowledge of where the next watering hole or safe haven was allowed their soldiers to lead their horses and camels quickly across terrain that to others would look impassable. The Arabs were also not migrating during the early raids. They were not carrying women and children in their train or non-essential possessions. They were also not travelling great distances as the Huns and Avars had had to. Historian Donald Hill commented that even if the Sassanids had emerged victorious after the Battle of al qadisiyah the Arab threat 
wouldn't have ended. They could have retreated into the sands and attacked again somewhere else. Perhaps a Roman victory at the Yarmouk wouldn't have been the end either. If the tribes were loose in the empire, raiding the cities constantly, then perhaps an equally disastrous defeat might have followed. If you have time to look at the map again, you'll see that telling gap right in the centre of the two empires that is connected to the Arabian Desert. The map I put up on episode 55 with all the geographical features marked shows this too. As the Arabs moved north, the desert road, as it were, led into the heart of the two empires. Their attacks could come from hundreds of miles of territory with no obvious way to stop them. I imagine some of you will feel the question of why the Arabs won still hasn't been answered, and sadly this is where the lack of credible sources really hurts us. We just can't be sure of what happened in Arabia between the time of Focus and the Yarmouk. Even if the Muslim historians are fairly accurate, they don't adequately explain how armies were organised or events were ordered. Having heard the evidence presented here, perhaps you will be more sympathetic to Tom Holland's comment that the Arab breakthrough could be seen as just a freak historical occurrence. The men of the desert were never likely to have the numbers to overwhelm the men of the cities. But thanks to the plague attacking the latter and not the former, and the Great War leaving the imperial powers as weak as they'd ever been, the moment was just right for the Arabs to seize the opportunity to become masters of the Middle East. More discussion of evidence is coming on this podcast, though. And I believe more answers will come as we move forward into what happened next. Now that the Arabs have taken the Fertile Crescent, suddenly we have historians from multiple peoples commenting on the story. From this stronger position, we can watch how the Arabs ruled, and from that learn more about how they kept winning. But I think we've tussled with this question long enough for today. So the next free episode will follow the Arab conquerors now that they are in the brighter light of history. The sale episode is coming, but probably not for a couple of weeks. I'm about to take the first proper vacation I've had in about two years, and I think it's best to uh, wait till I return. Some of you will have noticed that the episode has appeared at the website under the uh, for sale section, the uh, technical side is being worked through so please don't try and buy the episode because you won't be able to get it and i will release a podcast explaining how to get it and uh, giving you a little sales pitch on why i think you should get it or why you might want to avoid it anyway more information is coming soon i promise i should also say i'm really sorry to my american and uh, i suspect canadian listeners that In the Shadow of the Sword, despite being listed on Audible.com, is not yet available. I am now in touch with uh, the publishers, trying to find out if this is going to be sorted anytime soon. Certainly not within the next few weeks, I'm afraid. But uh, hopefully, at some point, I can announce that it is now available on Audible. Anyway, I will find some other recommendations down the line, and I will be back in a couple of weeks with information on how you can find out more about the origins of Islam and why the Arabs won. Thanks for listening.